Hi, this is Tom Zania. The following Tom Read Your Story episode is an instant replay. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome, listeners, to Tom Read Your Story. Join voice actor Tom Zania as he reads from articles, social media, past audiobooks, and other spoken word projects. You writers may also be given the chance to have your newly written material, fiction or nonfiction, read to an audience. And now, here's the host of Tom Reads Your Story, voice actor and podcaster, Tom Zania. And as always, Mr. Announcer, we thank you very much for that lovely introduction. Welcome to you, voice actors and writers of all kinds. And of course, audiobook listeners, we're celebrating the spoken word. And this is Tom Reads Your Story. Thanks for stopping by. I'm glad you're here. Today, we pay tribute to a great American writer, Pete Hamill, and I'll be right back. The afterlife is not at all what Jack Duffy had expected. A failed suicide attempt launches him into a world that tests his abilities. In this world, he learns more about himself after a lifetime of horrific decisions. Written by Paul B. Kohler and narrated by Tom Zania. Listen to this incredible book by visiting audible.com. I remember one time after the war, I was about 12. My father had a job in a factory across the way. And because he had lost his leg, he had a stump and a wooden artificial leg. And in the summer, uh, and, and there's nothing quite f- as ferocious as a New York August, he would work on this assembly line eight hours a day, and he was home that night, and I heard him weeping in the dark around one o'clock in the morning. And I knew that no matter what I ever did, I couldn't f- articulate it exactly, uh, that I had to honor that pain that you must honor that. And I think that's what the children of immigrants do, all of us. We know what they gave up. They gave up their countries. In some cases, they gave up their languages. They worked at the lousiest, rottenest jobs in order to put food on our tables. We have to honor that for the rest of our lives. And of course, that was Pete Hamill. in an interview that I found on YouTube talking about his father. We have definitely lost a a New York icon, Pete Hamill. I want to mention uh, there's a book for you Sinatra fans that uh, he has out called Why Sinatra Matters. Pete was uh, very, uh, very... uh, close to Sinatra. And, and he has written, uh, he wrote a very, uh, I hear, a very good book, uh, Why Sinatra Matters, which I will pick up hopefully very soon because I'm interested in reading it. Um, there are plenty of Sinatra books you know, written by different writers that some are thought of as great and, uh, 
some not so great, but uh, it's one that I definitely would like to check out. And I, I urge you to do that as well, especially if you're a Sinatra fan, as I am. And now I would like to play for you something from The New Yorker, another publication that Pete uh, wrote for. Uh, either freelanced or was on the staff. I'm not sure which, but he uh, he uh, wrote articles for so many publications, uh, New York Magazine, The Village Voice, and of course, The New Yorker. And uh, this is by Adam Gopnik. And it was published in The New Yorker, I believe, uh, the day that uh, he passed. Pete Hamill, Egalitarian Hero by Adam Gopnik, The New Yorker, August 5th. These days, anyone who remembers the era of the three television networks is called a survivor, but the columnist and novelist Pete Hamill, who died on Wednesday morning, was truly the last of a kind. He was one of the few living inheritors of a time when literary ambition and seriousness routinely intersected with tabloid energy and grit, when it was taken for granted that writing everywhere, reading everything, and drinking hard while you did it could be, hell, ought to be, aspects of a single life. A storyteller and man of the world, civil rights activist and music critic, Brooklyn-bred but Manhattan-bound, as the Brooklyn-bred were for so long, Pete was the kind of figure who could be called, on the morning of his death, and in the Daily News, no less, the Bard of the Five Boroughs, called that straight-up no-chaser, without the least trace of an ironic wink. If, reading those words, one smiled, it was, as he might have written, a fine and solid smile, fondly recalling his access to a tougher, more egalitarian city, than the one we lesser generations have made. His CV speaks to his range and energy, briefly but beautifully the editor of the Daily News, and, before that, the Post. He was as much at home with Manhattan Society people as with street guys, and in his day he squired, to use a lost tab word, a series of remarkable women, including Jackie Onassis herself, certainly, to spend time with him was to enter an era in many ways more benevolent than our own, when 52nd Street was filled with good jazz and the Yankees had not yet encountered George Steinbrenner. He once said sorrowfully, and entirely seriously, of someone who had passed away in the early 50s, and he died before he could hear the great Sinatra. Meaning before Sinatra began to make his concept albums, a true marker of time and value. A legend, quite possibly true, has Pete, along with his fellow journalist Jack Newfeld, sharing a presumably larger liquid dinner one night and determining that the three worst men in the history of the world were Hitler, Stalin, and Walter O'Malley. O'Malley, for millennials and Gen Xers, was the bad man who moved the Dodgers out of Brooklyn. And though recent, Bloomberg-era revisionism has tried to make him more of an ordinary businessman. He was a bad man. With Jimmy Breslin, Murray Kempton, and a handful of others, 
Pete upheld the truth that you could do as much real and deep writing in a tabloid as you could in a faculty club. But Pete was a real writer, not merely a tabloid ornament. His best book was A Drinking Life from 1995, one of the sweetest memoirs ever written about a Brooklyn boyhood, with all the sometimes potable, sometimes explosive ethnic and racial chemistry laid unsentimentally bare. Irish himself, he once explained that it was the Italians in the person of those like the excitable shortstop Phil Rizzuto and the heartbroken singer Sinatra, who taught the Irish that emotions were acceptable. Despite its title, the book spends little time on drinking and less time celebrating it. He understood the corner bar as a citadel of social trust more than as a place of pleasure. In relishing his stoop-ball smarts, you could easily miss the range and depth of his literary acumen and his capacity for parsing the complicated frictions of the city. Even situating him too narrowly in the city missed a lot. Mexico, where he had a second home, was his second home, and he spoke about its culture with corresponding intelligence. Scarcely five years ago, during a panel discussion of Albert Camus at the New School, where he taught, it was evident to everyone listening that Pete knew Camus' work far better than the academics and standard-issue highbrows on the panel, and, more important, that he had a far more immediate sense of the political pressures and possibilities felt by a daily newspaper columnist, which is what Camus had been, too. Of Camus' Algerian Chronicles, Pete noted that, on occasion, there is a tone of anguish in the author, as if he knows there will be no good ending to the story of the FLN, the Algerian guerrilla resistance, and the prolonged, sometimes savage ejection of the French, who had been there since 1830. What he valued most about Camus, he said, was that he had come to mistrust certainty, rejecting ideology, secular and religious. It is somewhat heartbreaking to think of Pete passing away at this, one of the lowest moments in his beloved city's history. But then, resilience was his greatest value, and the one thing that he would never do was give up, on the city or himself. He had some rough later years, physically, but just last year he wrote to a friend that my wife Fukiko and I are now back living in my old country, the Democratic Republic of Brooklyn, after thirty-odd years in Manhattan. Obviously, I'm writing about it, if slowly. I have a three-hour dialysis session three times a week to ward off kidney failure. I have two broken hips, diabetes too, and a rigorous ascetic diet. But what the hell, I'm alive, and I ain't done yet. No, he wasn't done, and both as a good writer to admire and an egalitarian hero to emulate, will not be soon. I wanted to do something today that I wasn't sure I wanted to start doing, uh, you know, on a sort of frequent basis, and that is perform some of the uh, pieces from my blog. I've had a blog off and on for, gosh, at least 10 years, and I, I'm, I don't write as much as I should, 
and I kind of go a long time uh, before I say to myself, gee, I haven't written anything in a while, and I'll write something. And I thought since, you know, I have the podcast now, maybe uh, some of my blog articles uh, could be played. What I'm going to play for you is one that obviously I just did um, in regards to to Beat Hamill. And uh, this is uh, this is something I put together a few days ago. And uh, it's just a short little thing. And um, here it is. So Long, Pete, by Tom Zania, from the blog Random Notes. Though it happened a week ago, I couldn't let a show go by without mention of a great loss, not only to New York, but to the gigantic literary world. Books, essays, appearances, and of course newspapers are still taking the knee at the passing of the quintessential New York journalist, Pete Hamill. This podcast, Tom Read Your Story, honors the spoken word, yes, but it bows first to the written one. You could say without a later rebuke that you're only a New Yorker if you know the name Pete Hamill. I am someone who's not a voracious reader of newspapers, but still an occasional one. It took an appearance on a PBS special, simply called New York, to clue me in on the fact that I was watching and listening to the distinctive voice of a legendary New York storyteller. Then, the caption in the interview reminded me. It was one I had heard bandied about many, many times. Those things linger in your memory. So long, Pete. And, of course, that was from my blog, its latest name, it's gone through about 15 name changes, is Random Notes. And if you're interested in reading anything else, what, I'm, what I posted just now uh, on the podcast was just a, a, a small a little tribute thing. But I have some other things in there like uh, movie reviews, um T- television reviews, I, th- I think uh, some music things in there. Um, but if you're interested, you can go to randomnotes2.weebly, that's W-E-E-B-L-Y, dot com, randomnotes2.weebly.com. The first time I had ever seen or heard Pete Hamill was on a great documentary about New York um, that Rick Burns made. Uh, I think it's just called uh, New York, a documentary film or something like that. And that might be it. It is excellent. It's probably the best out there uh, as far as New York documentaries go. So if you get a chance, definitely go to YouTube and uh, look it up. You'll see many different clips of it on YouTube. I don't think it has the whole thing, but uh, definitely check it out, uh, especially if you are a New Yorker or 
you frequently come here, definitely check it out. It's it's very, very good. It's narrated by David Otkin Steers, the late David Otkin uh, Steers. And what I was, getting back to what I was talking about, uh, Pete Hamill is all through this documentary. And there couldn't be a better person for it, uh, talking about the different things, historical things that have happened in New York. Uh, it's There's just many, many things that uh, he talks about in his own spectacular way. The next piece I'm going to play for you is a recording I made of uh, one of Pete's articles. For those of you, um, and I would think there are a good number of people out there who might not be familiar with Pete Hamill or his work. This is how powerful he was as a writer. This is an article about the assassination of Bobby Kennedy. Uh, he was there. He was basically right next to where it was all happening. And this is a story that you need to hear. Two Minutes to Midnight. The Very Last Hurrah by Pete Hamill from The Village Voice. June 6th, 1968, Los Angeles. It was, of course, two minutes to midnight, and the embassy room of the Ambassador Hotel was rowdy with triumph. Red and blue balloons drifted up through three golden chandeliers to bump against a gilded ceiling. Young girls with plastic Kennedy boaters chanted like some lost reedy chorus from an old Ray Charles record. The crowd was squashed against the bandstand, a smear of black faces and Mexican-American faces and bearded faces and Beverly Hills faces, crowned with purple hair. Eleven TV cameras were turning, their bright blue arc lights changing the crowd into a sweaty stew. Up on the bandstand, with his wife standing just behind him, was Robert Kennedy. I'd like to express my high regard for Don Drysdale, Kennedy said. Drysdale had just won his sixth straight shutout. I hope we have his support in this campaign. There was a loud cheer. He thanks Rafer Johnson and Rosie Greer. Cheers. And Jesse Unruh. Timid cheer. And Cesar Chavez. Very loud cheer. And he thanked the staff and the volunteers and the voters. And the crowd hollered after every sentence. It was the sort of scene that Kennedys have gone through a hundred times and more. On this night, at least, it did not appear that there would be a last hurrah. Kennedy had not scored a knockout over Eugene McCarthy, but a points decision, at least, would keep his campaign going. I thank all of you, Kennedy was saying. Mayor Yorty has just sent a message that we have been here too long already. Laughter. So my thanks to all of you. And now it's on to Chicago. I was at the rear of the stand, next to George Plimpton. Kennedy put his thumb up to the audience, brushed his hair, made a small V with his right hand, and turned to leave. The crowd started shouting, We want Bobby! We want Bobby! Plimpton and I went down three steps, 
and turned left through a gauntlet of Kennedy volunteers and private cops in brown uniforms. We found ourselves in a long, grubby area called the pantry. It was the sort of place where Puerto Ricans, blacks, and Mexican-Americans usually work to fill white stomachs. There were high, bluish fluorescent lights strung across the ceiling, a floor of raw, sandy-colored concrete, pale, dirty walls. On the right were a rusty ice machine and shelves filled with dirty glasses. On the left, an archway led into the main kitchen, and under the arch, a crowd of Mexican-American cooks and busboys waited to see Kennedy. Against the left wall, three table-sized serving carts stood end-to-end, and at the far end were two doors leading to the press room, where Kennedy was going to talk to reporters. Kennedy moved slowly into the area, shaking hands, smiling, heading a platoon of reporters, photographers, staffers, the curious TV men. I was in front of him, walking backward. I saw him turn to his left and shake the hand of a small Mexican cook. We could still hear the chants of, We want Bobby from the embassy room. The cook was smiling and pleased. Then a pimply messenger arrived from the secret filthy heart of America. He was curly-haired, wearing a pale blue sweatshirt and blue jeans, and he was planted with his right foot forward and his right arm straight out, and he was firing a gun. The scene assumed a kind of insane fury, all jump cuts, screams, noise, hurtling bodies, blood. The shots went pap, 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 small sharp noises like a distant firefight or the sound of firecrackers in a backyard. Rosie Greer of the Los Angeles Rams came from nowhere and slammed his great bulk into the gunman, crunching him against the serving table. George Plimpton grabbed the guy's arm, and Rafer Johnson moved to him, right behind Bill Barry, Kennedy's friend and security chief, and they were all making deep animal sounds, and still the bullets came. Get the gun! Get the gun! Rafer, get the gun! Get the fucking gun! No, someone said, and you could hear the stunned horror in the voice, the replay of odd scenes, the muffle of drums. No! 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 We knew then that America had struck again. In this slimy little indoor alley, in the back of a gaudy ballroom, in this shabby reality behind the glittering facade, Americans were doing what they do best, killing and dying and cursing because hope doesn't last very long among us. I saw Kennedy lurch against the ice machine and then sag and then fall forward slowly to be grabbed by someone. And I knew then that he was dead. He might linger a few hours or a few days, but his face reminded me somehow, of Benny Perret, and the night Emil Griffith hammered him into unconsciousness. Kennedy's face had a kind of sweet acceptance to it, the eyes understanding that it had come to him the way it had come to so many others before him. The price of the attempt at excellence was death. You saw a flicker of that understanding on his face as his life seeped out of a hole in the back of his skull to spread like spilled wine across the scummy concrete floor. It was as if all of us there went simultaneously insane. A cook was screaming, Kill him! Kill him now! Kill him! Kill him! I tried to get past Greer, Johnson, Plimpton, and Barry to get at the gunman. The Jack Ruby in me was rising up, white, bright, with a high singing sound in the ears, and I wanted to damage that insane little bastard they were holding. I wanted to break his face, 
to rip away flesh, to hear bone break as I pumped punches into that pimpled skin. Bud Schulberg was next to me. I suppose he was trying to do the same. Just one punch. Just one for Dallas. Just one for Medgar Evers. Just one for Martin Luther King. Just one punch. Just one. One. Kennedy was lying on the floor, with black rosary beads in his hand and blood on his fingers. His eyes were still open, and his wife Ethel reached him to kneel in an orange and white dress. His lips were moving. We heard nothing. Ethel smoothed his face, running ice cubes along his cheeks. There was a lot of shouting and a strange chorus of high screaming. My notes showed that Kennedy was shot at 12.10 and was taken out of that grubby hole at 12.32. It seemed terribly longer. I don't remember how it fits into the sequence, but I do have one picture of Rosie Greer holding the gunman by his neck, choking life out of him. Rosie, Rosie, don't kill him. We want him alive. Don't kill him, Rosie. Don't kill him. Kill the bastard. Kill that son of a bitch bastard, a Mexican busboy yelled. Don't kill him, Rosie. Where's the doctor? Where in Christ's name is the doctor? Greer decided not to kill the gunman. They had him up on a serving table at the far end of the pantry, as far as they could get him from Kennedy. Jimmy Breslin and I were standing up on the table, peering into the gunman's face. His eyes were rolling around and then stopping and then rolling around again. The eyes contained pain, flight, entrapment, and a strange kind of bitter endurance. I didn't want to hit him anymore. Where the fuck is the doctor? Can't they get a fucking doctor? Move back. Here comes a doctor. Here's a doctor. Move back. Kennedy was very still now. There was a thin film of blood on his brow. They had his shoes off and his shirt open. The stretcher finally arrived, and he trembled as they lifted him. His lips moved, and the flash bulbs blinked off one final salvo. And he was gone. I ran out, out into the lobby, and picked up my brother Brian. And we rushed to the front entrance. A huge black man, sick with grief and anger and bitterness, was throwing chairs around. Most landed in the pool. The young Kennedy girls were crying and wailing, knowing, I suppose, what the guys my age discovered in Dallas. Youth was over. Sick, one girl kept saying. Sick, sick. What kind of country is this? Sick, sick. Outside, there were cops everywhere and sirens. The cops were trying to get one of the wounded into a taxi. The cabbie didn't want to take him, afraid, I suppose, that blood would sully his nice plastic upholstery. When we got through the police barricades, we drove without talk to the hospital of the Good Samaritan, listening to the news on the radio. The unspoken thought was loudest. The country's gone. Medgar Evers was dead. Malcolm X was dead. Martin Luther King was dead. Jack Kennedy was dead. And now Robert Kennedy was dying. The hell with it. The hatred was now general. I hated that pimpled kid in that squalid cellar enough to want to kill him. He hated Kennedy the same way. That kid and the bitter Kennedy haters were the same. All those people in New York who hated Kennedy's guts, who said, Ech, when his name was mentioned, the ones who creamed over Murray Kempton's vicious diatribes these past few months, they were the same. When Evers died, when King died, when Jack Kennedy died, 
All the bland pundits said that some good would come of it in some way, that the nation would go through a catharsis, that somehow the bitterness, the hatred, the bigotry, the evil of racism, the glib violence would be erased. That was bullshit. We will have our four-day televised orgy of remorse about Robert Kennedy. And then, it will be business as usual. You could feel that as we drove through the empty L.A. streets, listening to the sirens screaming in the night, nothing would change. Kennedy's death would mean nothing. It was just another digit in the great historical pageant that includes the slaughter of Indians, the plundering of Mexico, the enslavement of black people, the humiliation of Puerto Ricans. Just another digit. Nothing would come of it. While Kennedy's life was ebbing out of him, Americans were dropping bombs and flaming jelly on Orientals. While the cops fingerprinted the gunmen, Senator Eastland's Negro subjects were starving. While the cops made chalk marks on the floor of the pantry, the brave members of the National Rifle Association were already explaining that people commit crimes, guns don't, as if Willie Mays could hit a home run without a bat. These cowardly bums claimed constitutional rights to kill fierce deer in the forests, and besides, suppose the niggers come to the house and we don't have anything to shoot them with. Suppose we have to fight a nigger man to man, America the Beautiful, with crummy little mini John Waynes carrying guns to the woods like surrogate penises. Yes, the kid I saw shoot Kennedy was from Jordan, was diseased with some fierce hatred for Jews. Sam Yorty, who hated Kennedy, now calls Kennedy a great American and blames the communist. Hey, Sam, you killed him too. The gun that kid carried was American. The city where he shot down a good man was run by Sam Yorty. How about keeping your fat pig stink mouth shut? At the approach to the Good Samaritan Hospital, the cops had strung red flares across the gutter and were stopping everyone. A crowd of about 75 people were on the corner when we arrived, about a third of them black. I went in past those black people who must have felt that there was no white man at all with whom they could talk. A mob of reporters was assembling at the hospital entrance. The cops were polite, almost gentle, as if they sensed that something really had happened and that many of these reporters were friends of the dying man. Most of the hospital windows were dark, and somewhere up there Robert Kennedy was lying on a table while strangers stuck things into his brain looking for a killer's bullet. We were friends, and I didn't want him to die, but if he were to be a vegetable, I didn't want him to live either. We drove home, through the wastelands around L.A., and the canyons through the mountains to the south. When I got home, my wife was asleep, the TV still playing out its record of the death watch. Frank Reynolds of ABC, a fine reporter and a compassionate man, was so upset he could barely control his anger. I called some friends and poured a drink. Later I talked to my old man, who came to this country from Ireland, in flight from the Protestant bigots of Belfast 40 years ago. I suppose he loved John Kennedy even more than I did, and he has never really been the same since Dallas. Now 
it happened again. If you see Teddy, he said, tell him to get out of politics. The Kennedys are too good for this country. I remembered the night in 1964, in that bitter winter after John Kennedy's murder, when Robert Kennedy appeared at a St. Patrick's Day dinner in Scranton, Pennsylvania. He talked about the Irish and the long journey that started on the quays of Wexford and ended in Parkland Hospital. He reminded them of the days when there were signs that said, No Irish need apply. And it was always to his greatest dismay that so many sons of Irishmen he came across in New York were bigots and haters. Bob told them about Owen O'Neill, an Irish patriot whose ideals had survived his martyrdom. Men were crying as he read the old Irish ballad. Oh, why did you leave us, Owen? Why did you die? We're sheep without a shepherd when the snow shuts out the sky. Oh, why did you leave us, Owen? Why did you lie? I don't know. There was some sort of answer for John Kennedy and another for Robert Kennedy. But I had learned that I knew nothing, finally. That when my two young daughters present the bill to me in another ten years, I won't have much to say. I sat there drinking rum until I was drunk enough to forget that pimpled face cracking off the rounds into the body of a man who was a friend of mine. Finally, easily, with the sun up, I fell asleep on the couch. I didn't have any tears left for America, but I suppose not many other Americans did either. Pete Hamill, truly a New York original, who will be greatly missed. And that should do it for this episode. If you enjoyed today's show, please tell your friends and have them tell their friends. Be sure to email me at tomreadyourstory at yahoo.com to send in your book, article, or poetry for me to perform, or if you have questions about the show. As always, thanks to anchor.fm for the chance to have an ongoing podcast. I very much appreciate it. Hope you and your friends come back soon. Have a great day. Stay safe and take care. For more information on Tom's availability for your e-learning, commercial, audiobook, or video project, visit his website at www.tomzvoices.weebly.com. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Tom Reads Your Story.